We, uh, in this sermon series, this is part of a larger context of uh, a year of living justice. And we're trying to figure out what does it mean to live God's justice this year. Uh, justice is a big buzzword in the culture, and uh, all people from all different walks of life are promoting the idea of justice. But what does the Bible actually say about justice? And so this has been a year of discovering a biblical vision of justice. And uh, this series to wrap up the year, just sex, just money, just power, we've been concentrating on these three areas because these are three areas that humans, whether they're Christian or non-Christian, uh, we keep messing up in these areas. We, cre- we keep uh, spreading injustice uh, in spite of ourselves, in spite of our, our strong desires. We keep spreading injustice. Uh, and, and so we decided to wrap up the year by focusing on these three areas, just sex, just money, and just power. Uh, we spent the first part of the fall talking about sex. We talked uh, about, we just finished talking about money, even though there's lots more to, to talk about. Uh, today, we are uh, beginning our final series of the year, Just Power. And um, <clears throat> uh, p- part of, most particularly the ways we mess up is we idolize these three things. An idol is anything that we look to instead of God for whatever. Um, and so what, what we do, uh, even Christians do this, is uh, we idolize sex. Instead of looking to God to be our fullness of joy and eternal pleasures forevermore, uh, instead we look to sex to fulfill that need for us. Um, when it comes to idolizing money, instead of looking to God to be our provider, we look to money to provide for us. And uh, today we're going to start to find out some of the ways we idolize, uh, we idolize power. Um, today, so we're just focusing on, on, uh, on power. Now, um, Advent, uh, Christmas season, some of you might wonder, this seems like a weird topic for the Christmas season. Um, uh, seems like an odd thing to talk about uh, when we talk about Advent. But actually, this is the perfect opportunity to talk about this topic of power, um, because Christmas is the story of how God saved us, not with a show of raw power, but by humbling himself, by actually giving up power. That's what Christmas is. Christmas is the story of God humbling himself. And so it's actually the perfect time, uh, Christmas and Advent are the perfect time to talk about power. You know, the story of the Exodus, we went through about a year and a half ago, and in that story, God showed his raw power. He made a, a demonstration of raw power, and he, uh, he humbled uh, the greatest human power on earth, Egypt at the time. He humbled all their idols and uh, set the people free, released them from slavery, and that was great. That solved the external problem of their slavery, but it didn't solve the internal problem of their slavery to sin. Uh, they were still just as much slaves to sin after they had escaped, uh, even though God had shown his power. And a lot of times, we want God to show up in, in uh, incredible demonstrations of power, uh, raw power, and, um, and, uh, and not realizing that what we really need is for God to humble himself and help us on the inside with our slavery to sin. So that's what we're going to start to dive into today. So power. Power is a really tricky thing to talk about. 
Um, and, uh, and it's tricky for a lot of different reasons. The main reason is we all need power to get anything done. You, you needed power this morning to wake up. You needed power to get out of bed. Uh, well, you needed power to draw a breath. You needed power to eat. You needed power to... You need power tomorrow to go to work. Um, you, need power, you need power to get here today. Everybody needs a measure of power just to live life. And yet, we all so easily abuse and misuse power, don't we? Uh, very quickly, we can turn this thing that we all need, and we all need a significant amount of it, we can, all, we can turn it into something destructive to ourselves and to other people. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's, it's no wonder that we idolize power. Um, we see power as kind of the only route to success. It's the only way to make sure that we can get what we need. It's the uh, only way to make sure that we can get happiness in life. It's, it's our only way of guaranteeing our safety is if we feel powerful. Um, it's it's uh, kind of our only little hope of avoiding suffering in the world. We, we often feel, when, when we realize just how vulnerable and exposed we are to danger, uh, our first instinct is to uh, increase our power so that somehow we can avoid some of the suffering to which we are exposed. And, uh, and so we need it, and we need a significant amount of it, and we easily turn that into an idol. Um, very interesting, uh, uh, you know, th- this... this this affects big historical movements, and it also impacts very small, intimate details in our lives. Um, uh, so as far as big movements go, I, you know, I was a Russian language and, and literature major over here at McAllister back in the day. And uh, um, so I did a deep dive into Russian and Soviet history and language and literature. And uh, interesting thing you find out about Russian history um, Throughout almost all of its history, only 2% of the people, of the population, ever had any significant amount of power to be able to do anything. Um, and that meant 98% of the people had almost no power, next to no power. Uh, they almost 98% of the population for most of Russian history were uh, what were called serfs. Serfs are basically slave, slaves light, uh, kind of a light version of slavery. Um, they... Uh, didn't have any freedom about where they chose to live. They didn't have economic freedom. They couldn't earn uh, money, their own money. They, they uh, didn't own their own lives. So it was basically a form of, of slavery. Um, and, and that was continued on for most of their population. So uh, the Russians decided, tried to do something about that, about that inequality, that abuse of power that the 2% uh, was uh, wielding over the 98%. And so they, they had a revolution just about exactly 100 years ago well, guess what? Within about a decade, um, they, they, they had gotten rid of that original 2% of people who were in power. They basically killed them or enslaved them or imprisoned them. But uh, all that resulted was another 2% of people who had all the power in the Soviet Union. And once again, 98% of the people in the new Soviet Union had no power. Um, and so the, the exact same kind of inequality continued. So, so this problem of power, it affects whole nations, it affects the history of, of uh, all, you know, entire nations, it, but it also impacts us uh, in a very intimate way, doesn't it? Uh, you think about all of the, 
the ways you go through your day trying to navigate and negotiate uh, power. Um, you know, you, do, you, don't, you don't want the, the guy, um, uh, when, when, when you're trying to merge into the lane, you don't want the guy who's trying to edge himself ahead of you. You know, you don't want him to have too much power and uh, over you or else it's going to ruin your day because then you're going to, you know, get pushed to the side. There's, there's little things we're doing all the time to try to protect our power, try to promote our power, try to get a little bit more power. Um, and so, so how could any of us avoid the idolatry of power? Um, <clears throat> I want to read a couple of stories of some situations, very intimate situations, in which the imbalance of power had disastrous consequences. This is Amber's story. Hi, my name is Amber. I am 28 years old. I've been married for 10 years and I have four children. When I met my husband, I was 18 years old. We met at work. He was handsome, Christian, and came from a good family. I married my husband only after dating for a few months. We were young and I was in love. It made sense to me at the time. My husband was very charming in the start of our relationship. And I always felt bad for him because he grew up being verbally abused and physically abused by his father. He was, he was very hurt by this. When we were dating, he showed some red flags. Once in an argument, he got very upset with me and he called me vulgar names and yelled. He later apologized, and I just swept it under the carpet. Our arguments were never normal, so to speak. He would get very defensive over the smallest things. I think because he felt like I was uh, disappointed in him or putting him down. I think that these insecurities stem from years of his father's emotional abuse, but this would set him into a rage. Over the years, he's called me every profanity under the sun. I'm belittled. I've been hit, choked, and ended up in the emergency room twice. Once from a head concussion when I was pregnant with our first son, and once because I was punched in the face so hard that it chipped my cheekbone. It's a true story about a wife who has been trapped in domestic abuse. And experts on domestic abuse will tell us Domestic abuse is really all about power and control. Now, like we just, I just read in Amber's story, her husband had grown up abused, and its uh, abusive environment is the breeding ground for more abuse, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the person who's abused is going to become an abuser. What makes the difference between someone who becomes an abuser and someone who doesn't is the abuser has this deep-down desperate need for power and control. And they might not have it in other parts of their life, but they feel like there's this one area in their life, uh, 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 in a committed uh, covenant relationship uh, with a spouse, they feel like that's where they get to have power and control. Um, I'm going to read Leslie's story. Leslie thought that she found true love in her early 20s. Instead, she found herself married to a man who repeatedly pointed a gun at her head and threatened to kill her. Leslie tells the story of how she, a Harvard-educated magazine editor turned businesswoman, fell into an abusive relationship. Leslie calls this phenomenon crazy love. 
Like many other women and men experience each year, her relationship started with adoration, moved on to isolation, and culminated in extreme manipulation and violence. She writes, he held those loaded guns to my head, pushed me downstairs, threatened to kill our dog, pulled the key out of the car ignition as I drove down the highway, poured coffee grinds on my head as I dressed for a job interview. And as it turns out, I'm a very typical domestic abuse victim. Domestic violence happens to everyone. All races, all religions, all income and education levels. And you know, what Leslie says here is, is, is true. It happens to everyone. There isn't a significant difference um, inside the church uh, versus outside of the church of people who experience domestic abuse in their own marriages or in their own homes. So we can, we can sort of criticize the, the tyrants and the dictators and the, uh, the wealthy and the politicians. We can criticize them for their abuse and misuse of power. We can criticize Russia for its misuse of power. But what about here? What about here at home and what about in our own hearts and in our own intimate relationships? And as I mentioned, experts have told us domestic abuse isn't so much about being, having been abused or, being, or, or getting to abuse or the pleasure of abuse or something, but it's more about that need for power and control. So power is an idol, even though we need it for life. So kind of how we generally seem to view power is, is there seems there's this pyramid, and uh, we feel like we need to climb our way to uh, the top of that pyramid, um, and so we kind of do everything to get our way to the top and be one of the bosses, one of the people in charge. Uh, makes us feel less vulnerable, makes us feel uh, more free, makes us feel like we, have, we can make life uh, happier for ourselves and those we love. But of course, instead of using a nice little neat ladder like that, we, uh, we end up clutching and clawing and clinging our way up to the top. And it doesn't really matter who gets hurt, or who gets in the way. Um, if we can get more power, that's what matters to us. So, how do we... How do we rescue ourselves from this need for power? How, how do we, we, we need it to do anything in life, but how do we handle power in a way that is uh, under God? How do we do that in a way that doesn't abuse or misuse power? Well, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Philippians chapter 2. If you could, uh, there's a Bible in front of you. Or you can look it up on your device, Philippians chapter 2. And uh, we're going we're gonna to take a look at what Paul saw as the solution to the abuse and misuse of power. So Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 1. Starting in verse 1, this is what Paul writes, Therefore... If any of you have, if, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any 
compassion or any uh, common sharing in the spirit of any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. I, I, want, I want you to think for a minute. Just imagine, and if you need to close your eyes and to imagine, go ahead and do that. Uh, but I want you to imagine what your life would be like if you were plunked down in the middle of a community that was really like this, that actually lived this out. Um, if you were raised, if you'd been, what, imagine what your life would be like if you were raised in a family or a situation where everybody actually lived this out. If, if people actually were one in spirit, one in mind, and didn't operate out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility they valued one another and didn't look to their own interests but to the interests of others, uh, imagine how free you would feel from the need to always be protecting yourself. Imagine how free you would feel from the need to always be promoting yourself and always trying to find little ways to uh, edge out the competition, always trying to find little ways to give yourself just that much more power and that much more control in your life. What if you were free from that? Think of the sigh of relief you would be able to breathe if you were in a community like this. If you didn't have to worry about all this clutching after power, it just seems like paradise if we could actually live that way. The big question, though, is, is how. How are we supposed to live that way? That almost seems too idealistic, too pie in the sky, almost seems fake. How are we supposed to do that? Well, I would like to draw your attention to the final verse that I just read, verse 5, and uh, see, uh, see what Paul's solution is there. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. So what Paul is saying here is the solution to be able to live this way where we're valuing one another, where people aren't doing anything out of selfish ambition, is to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. What does that mean? Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Well, fortunately, in the next few verses, Paul tells us exactly what that means. Let's, let's, let's read the next few verses together, starting in verse 6. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God, something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Very interesting. I want you to notice just a few of these words that Paul uses here. Um, First of all, the word nothing says that Jesus made himself nothing. Now, the the literal word there in Greek is kenosis, and and it means that Jesus emptied himself of his godliness. He gave it up. We don't even really know what emptiness means. For the centuries, theologians have been debating and trying to figure out what is that word in Greek. Uh, I mean, we know it means, literally means empty, but what does it actually mean? What does it mean for God to empty himself? Nobody actually knows, uh, but we know it involves uh, Jesus lowering himself down to our level. Uh, A couple weeks ago, Pastor Steve uh, quoted from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, where it says that Jesus, who was rich, made himself poor so in order to make us rich. Uh, Jesus actually took on poverty so that we could be enriched. And, and that describes this very same act that Jesus did by becoming one of us, humbling himself and becoming nothing. Um, And uh, next, I want you to notice in in verse 7 also, it says he took on the very nature of a servant. When when Jesus emptied himself, when uh, when he made himself nothing and he came to earth, you know, he could have pranced around like the emperor. He could have gone up to um, the person, Caesar Tiberius, who was uh, emperor at the time and of, of the greatest empire the world had ever seen with the most land territory, the greatest wealth, could have tapped him on the shoulder and said, hey, buddy, you're out of here. Get off my throne. I'm, I'm, I'm taken over. Um, he could have done that, but he didn't. He served. And you can think right now, all of you can think of five or six instances in Scripture that describe how Jesus, with his power, served people. He served the hungry. He served the broken. He served the demon-possessed. He served, uh, of course, there's the most famous passage of all when Jesus uh, took off his outer garments and he got on his knees and he scrubbed the feet of his disciples, an act that in that day and age, only the most, uh, the lowliest of servants was given that task of uh, washing the feet of, of guests. And here Jesus was doing that. So he served, he spent his time, he took on the very nature of a servant. And then look down with me in verse 8. It says that he humbled himself. He humbled himself. Again, Jesus, Jesus could have come here and think of all the problems he could have taken care of if he had assumed the role of emperor or, or king. Um, think of all the the problems if he had sent the Roman legions out to take care of all all the problems and and combine that with his power to walk on water and his power to feed all the hungry. Just think of all the powers he just could have eliminated, all all the problems he could have eliminated if he had just done that. And instead, he humbled himself. He humbled himself. And uh, so kind of what Jesus is doing here is He's actually uh, reverse. He, he gets rid of all this clutching and clawing after power, and 
he gets rid of the pyramid thing, he, and he actually reverses the pyramid and comes down to the bottom of the pyramid, all right? And um, uh, instead of trying to climb to the top of the pyramid, and then he actually gets rid of this whole idea of, of the bosses um, who are supposed to be in charge. Uh, he does that for us, um, and I want you to pay special attention to how he does that in particular. If we look at the last line of verse 8, it says that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, <clears throat> we've romanticized the cross. We've turned it into this pretty picture. Um, we even have pictures of Jesus kind of looking sort of serene, you know, on the, he's like kind of closing his eyes, going, ah, you know, like, like he was enjoying himself on the cross or something or just relaxing. Um, uh, the cross was the most torturous uh, it was an invention of the Roman Empire, the most torturous way of trying to kill people, uh, and, they, uh, and it was also the most shameful way of dying. In all of our pictures of Jesus, he's wearing a loincloth. Uh, in reality, he wasn't even wearing a loincloth. Uh, the painters just put that there to, for modesty's sake. Uh, Jesus took the death of uh, the most um, vile and wretched criminals when he died on the cross. Um, and, uh, and so his way down, his, the way he, uh, the ladder he took down to the bottom was the ladder of the cross. And that is also the ladder he wants us to take all the way down to the bottom and join him. If, if you remember the scripture that we've just been reading in Philippians, that all comes under the head of Paul saying he wants us to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. He wants us to take on the same mindset where we also humble ourselves like Jesus did, empty ourselves like Jesus did, and follow him on the cross all the way to the bottom where he is, where he has joined the most, um, uh, the most humiliating of all places, the place where the worst criminals were sent to die. So if we're serious about knocking down the idols of power and control, if we're serious about living out Philippians 2, this vision where we're not operating out of selfish ambition and vain conceit, where we're valuing one another even more than ourselves. If we're serious about following Jesus, then we need to take the same route down, down the pyramid that he has taken, the route of the cross. And so what this series is about, this series on, on uh, just power, if we want to have if we want to justly use power, correctly use power God's way, the power that we do need to use if we're going to just operate in life, we, the only way we can be entrusted with that power is to follow Jesus down to the bottom of the pyramid. <clears throat> and a couple points I want to leave you with about how to do this. Um, when... When, when I'm talking about contemplating the cross, 
Um, first of all, it means trusting. Trusting the cross. Trusting what happened on the cross. Um, uh, some of you have yet to trust what Jesus did on the cross for you. You might have kind of a, just a general vague notion. Yeah, I think Jesus died on the cross for our sins, blah, blah, blah. But you haven't yet seen yourself as a sinner who needs to be cleansed of your sin. And the only way you and I can be cleansed of our sin is when we look at the cross, we see what Jesus did there, we see that he took the punishment for our sins, died in our place instead of us, and because of that, we can now be declared righteous and free and children of God because of what Jesus did on the cross. So the first step of contemplating the cross is trusting it. Some, some of us here in this room for the very first time. The rest of us may not be the first time, but we need to keep trusting the cross. We need to keep looking at the cross. If you've, if you've lived even a day, then you've sinned, and you, know that, uh, <laughs> and, and, and you know that you need forgiveness again. Um, <clears throat> you and I need to keep trusting what was done on the cross for us. But more than just trusting the result of the cross and what was done for us on the cross, we also need to embrace the cross, cherish it, consider it to be a treasure. Now, if, if, if 2,000 years ago, if I, when the New Testament was written, if I had said you should cherish and treasure the cross, that would be, the audience at the time would, it would be like them hearing you say, treasure the electric chair or treasure the, um, the noose on, uh, for the people who are being uh, hanged. Um, and so it sounds, uh, it, um, it doesn't sound so much to us today because it's been 2,000 years of church history, um, but uh, it is radical to say cherish this form of execution um, and treasure it. But that's what we need to do. Um, and we need to cherish it as our ladder down to the bottom of the pyramid. We need to cherish it as our ladder down to the bottom of the pyramid. Further than that, more than that, we need to say yes to the cross when it shows up in our lives. Now, all of us at one point or another will have the cross show up in our life. Something painful, some kind of challenge, some kind of trial that we didn't invent, we didn't ask for, we didn't want. And we instead of rejecting it, instead of trying to run away from it, instead of trying to hide from it, instead of trying to skirt it, instead of trying to build up our power to try to avoid it, instead of trying to pad ourselves against the cross, we actually need to embrace the cross in our lives. A cross might be a difficult relationship. A cross might be um, uh, some kind of disability in your life. A cross might be um, some kind of addiction in your life that you've struggled with. The cross might be, uh, it could be a thousand different things. It shows up differently in every person's life, and it shows up in hundreds of different ways in just one person's life. But instead of saying no to the cross, we need to say yes to the cross, whatever it might be. And finally, we need to savor the one who lowered himself on the cross. You need to spend time contemplating what, who this Jesus is 
what he's done for us and embracing this Jesus and savoring him. This one who died on the cross for us. Jesus says in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, he says that he is gentle and humble of heart. Here he is, the exalted king of the whole universe with all the power and all the authority and all the universe. And he says he's gentle and he's humble in heart. We need to embrace this Jesus who's gentle and humble in heart. We need to embrace the Jesus who, as I quoted earlier, 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says that Jesus became poor so that we can become rich. Now, at this point, some of you might be saying, whoa, I thought this was the beginning of a Christmas series. This is the beginning of Advent. I, it feels like I walked into a Good Friday service. What is going on? Why are you talking about the cross? <clears throat> um, this is actually the most Christmassy thing, the most Adventy thing we can possibly ta- be talking about because Christmas and Advent, that's the story of how God lowered himself. It's the story of how God became nothing. It's the story of how God humbled himself for our sake. And so this Christmas season, this Advent season, as you're preparing for Christmas, you know, it is good for us to jump into all the joy and all the fun, and that's, that's good. But this is also a season God has given us to prepare ourselves by contemplating how God humbled himself. And so it's appropriate that we start out uh, Advent with, um, with the table. And um, uh, we've got these uh, candles here, and every week we're going to light a new candle. Um, the candle, each candle represents something, um, uh, and we'll talk about it each week as it comes up. The first week of Advent represents uh, hope. And the reason it represents hope is... Um, the, the whole idea of Advent is that we're putting ourselves back in the place of the people who didn't have any hope, and in the middle of that darkness of hopelessness, God comes and he gives us a little pinprick of hope with the idea that he is, is going to come. He is going to lower himself. He is going to humble himself. He's going to make himself nothing, empty himself on our behalf. And so we can begin to rejoice in that little pinprick of hope that God is going to lower himself and become one of us. 